Welcome to the C3 Church Watson Podcast. Our vision is to connect you to Jesus, develop you as a follower of Christ, and empower you to build the church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. healthy. How many people know you can't change anybody? You can't change anybody. You marry someone thinking you can change them only to find that that doesn't work and uh, it's only really God that can change people. And uh, But we can do our part. We can do what, what we can in order for our relationships to get healthy. I want you to come in your Bibles this morning to the book of Matthew, which is in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, and uh, chapter 22 and verses 37 through to 40. These verses may be familiar to you if you've been around church. These are kind of uh, what we would say is a, is a key statement that Jesus made. And uh, he's answering a question as to what's the most important thing that I can do with my life, that I should be doing with my life. And it's a great question that we need to ask and answer ourselves. And Jesus responds like this. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I want us to uh, explore the topic this morning within our series of Together called Fight Your defaults. Fight your defaults. We're going to take a moment, we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into this. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, we, we thank you for the scripture that it teaches us. Lord, it, it, it corrects us. It causes us to live our very best life. When we put these things into practice, when we put these words into play in our life, we thank you, God, that your spirit combines with the word of God and that we find ourselves living our best life. And God, we want our relationships to be healthy. Lord, there's not one of us in this room this morning, Father, who who wants their relationships to be messy and painful. God, we want our relationships to be full of joy, full of health. And so God, we pray this morning that your word would instruct us and teach us how to do this well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It all hangs on this. I don't know if you're, if you're a sports fan. I, I am attracted to anything with a ball and a competition involved. And one of my favorite sports is basketball. And I, I really love watching the NBA, which is the American Association. Uh, and it's playoff time at the moment. And I'm really excited and, uh, and just got that extra bounce in my step because for whatever reason, people putting a, a, a ball in a basket just gets me going. And... Um, what was, what, what's fascinating is before the game, and they do this in all sports, the commentators will often take some time to analyze what are the keys to the game? What are the keys? What does one team need to do in order to guarantee victory? I don't know if you've ever seen them do this. I, I can remember a few years ago, a, a player named, by the name of Kobe Bryant, who was an amazing player, one of the uh, greatest uh, basketball players in the last couple of decades. Uh, he was in the finals, and his team, the LA Lakers, were playing the Orlando Magic, and uh, and they interviewed Kobe Bryant after they'd won the championship, and they said, Kobe, what was the what was the key? He said, you know what was interesting? We realized that if I got the ball in a certain part, 
part of the court, they couldn't stop all of the scoring opportunities that that would, that would you know, uh, uncover. And, uh, and we realized that if I could get the ball, and it was, for those who want to nerd out, it was foul line extended down. And, uh, and they said, if I could get the ball down there, then, then, then there was just too many opportunities for us to score, and we knew that we were going to win. And isn't that amazing how you can find just certain keys to things that are seeming very, very complex, things that seem uh, very, really, really hard. You can just find one key, and if you can execute that, it, that the whole thing uh, uh, just un- unfolds for you. The whole thing just comes together. I remember we went skydiving about 10 years ago, and, uh, you know, you, you're feeling a bit apprehensive. I remember talking to the guy who was, who was just suiting me up, and I said, oh, how many times have you done this? He said, oh, this is my, um, this is my fourth time. And uh, he was just messing with me. He wasn't the guy jumping. He said, no, those are the guys jumping over there. And I looked over there, and they, they were folding up their parachutes into their bag. And I said, oh, they're, they're, they're getting ready, are they? He said, yeah, they always pack their own chute. They always pack their own chute because that's the key to the confidence that you need in order to jump out of the plane. You don't want someone else packing your chute thinking, I hope this thing's going to unfold the way that I want it to. I, I hope this thing's going to, when we jump out, I really hope when I pull the cord that I've got the confidence to, to, you know, land safely. You're going to land either way, but, you, you know, to, to land safely. And, uh, you know, it's amazing the Bible puts such an emphasis on this word love. Now, we've all got maybe preconceived ideas of what love is. So we can get pretty preoccupied with what love is and what our experience of love is. And we can define what love is by, by the, you know, the, the, the household that we grew up or the relationships that we've had. But, but, but the Bible puts such an emphasis on love. It even says in 1 Corinthians 13, it says that love never fails. Love never fails. What, what an extraordinary statement. I mean, to, to talk about putting your confidence in something, that, 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 that is always going to work. What, what an extraordinary statement. I mean, cynics scoff at this. If you're feeling cynical this morning, you probably think, nah, that's, <laughs> that's not right. That can't possibly. People who are heartbroken try to avoid this statement because they don't want to be heartbroken again. People who are naive just ignore this and want to go about their daily lives as ordinary citizens. But today they can become a refuge for us because we're all looking for something to hang our life on. We're all looking for something secure. We're all looking for a confidence we can put in. What is the key to my life? What can I do in my life that will ensure that everything else unfolds well? So that the parachute expands properly as I sail through life. I believe that inside every human heart is the desire to be loved, to receive love, to receive affirmation, to be accepted just the way we are. It's the way we were made. We, we, you're wired to receive love. You're, re- you're wired to receive affection. The first thing that God said when he created the world, this is before sin has entered the frame, before Adam and Eve have fallen from grace. The first thing that God said wasn't good was for Adam to be alone. So God made him a companion. He made him a helper. He made him a wife, which uh, is a fantastic thing. Our souls crave love. You only need to turn on the radio and listen to one song. You only need to turn on the television and watch one show or tune into one movie to see that the thread for the search for love, to be loved, has completely consumed us. We crave love. 
We want to find it. And people go looking for love in all sorts of extraordinary places. And some of those are the wrong places. Some of those places, it's like when Jesus said to, to, to the women who rocked up to the, you know, the grave on the resurrection Sunday, he said, why are you looking for the living in amongst the dead? People go looking for love where there is none. And, and we need to learn how do, we, how do we go looking in the right place for love to, to fill that, that need, to fill that desire inside each single one of us. I remember a, a few years ago, uh, my wife and I, we were pastoring in Sydney and uh, we were pastoring a young adults congregation. It was a Sunday night congregation. And um, this young guy started coming along to our church. Now, he was already attending another church and serving at a high capacity in that church. And then he started coming along to our church as well. And I thought, man, this guy is extraordinary. Look at this guy. I mean, he's turning up to two churches. How holy can he be? And, and you know, he's already serving, and now he wants to get involved in the, in the teams, and this is brilliant. And I thought, maybe he's coming because he really loves my preaching and all this. Until I discovered that the reason he was sitting there was that there was a girl... And I'm a realist. I know that there's probably a huge percentage of you who are sitting here because there's someone else here. You're not here for the message. You're here for the coffee. But he was here because love caused, he's giving up his Sunday night just so that he can be close to this girl. Anyway, they ended up, you know, getting married and uh, all this sort of stuff. But it's, it's amazing how, how, we, how we, can, we can change everything in our life in order to receive love. You, you go to extraordinary efforts just to be loved by someone else. It's an amazing thing. But here, here's, here's the more powerful thing, and this is what Jesus is actually talking about. It's not just that we have a desire to be loved. We have a capacity to love. So what changes our life is not our desire to be loved. Jesus didn't say that the greatest commandment is that you, you receive love. No, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is that you love. So not just that we're born with a desire to receive affection, receive affirmation, receive um, all, all of the things, you know, the comfort and the nurture of our household and our families and our friends, but that we have the capacity to love. So we are wired to perceive beauty in the world around us. We can look at a sunset and not just call it the end of the day, but say that that is beautiful. I love that when you drive into Canberra, you re, you, you, you're coming into the nation's capital here. This is where things happen. And you drive past those new signs that cost a lot of money. And then you drive a little bit further, you've got a petrol station, you think, yep, civilization. And then the very next thing you're greeted with are a field of cows. You notice that little field of cows? I just think that's hilarious. Like, yeah, way to make a statement. And, um, and, but you know what's interesting? You can stand in that field, and I'll you know, encourage you maybe tonight, maybe do this. No, no, no. Uh, you can stand in a, in a field next to a, next to a cow, and, and, and you can be looking at the sunset, and you say it's beautiful. The cow just, it's like, whatever, right? Because you're wired to find things beautiful. That's why you get attracted to people. And I'm not just saying a person. It's not just one person you'll find. You'll find yourself attracted to multiple people. Now, attraction doesn't mean that, oh, it's fake. This is the world. This is the world talking to you. The world will say, oh, you're attracted to that person. It's fake complete. You're, 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 you're now romantically. No, 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 no. 
That's why we, we can have more than one friend. That's why we can, we can find beauty in other people. We can find things that we find interesting and fascinating in a whole lot of people. We still control our desire to, you know, show certain levels of affection to people. And it puts us in control of our, our emotions and our ability to romantically connect with people. So not every person that you're attracted to means that you need to, you know, whatever. Don't want to go there. So here's the thing. It may have been your desire to have a friend that got you into the friendship, but it's your capacity to be a friend that keeps the friendship. It may have been your desire to have a job that got you the job, <laughs> but let me tell you, it's your capacity to do the job that will keep you in the job. It may have been your desire to, uh, to have a lifelong companion that got you married, but let me tell you, it's your capacity to be a lifelong companion that keeps <laughs> you married. And so implicit in this idea of our capacity to love is that we are able to find things beautiful and ascribe them value. See, I don't have anything in my life that I love that is worthless to me. So value comes from two things. It comes from your origin and your purpose. So uh, if you go down to the, the, the Mint in Deakin and you get a $50 note from there, it's worth $50 in Australia because it was made in the Mint. It did not originate from my photocopier or my, you know, computer. It originated in the right place. But not everything that's in the Mint is worth $50. Just because it came from the mint doesn't mean it has the same purpose. There's other things that come out of the mint. There's little $1 coins that come out of the mint, and they're just worth $1. There are paper clips you could steal from the mint, and they're not worth anything as currency. So my point here is that it's not just the origin. It's not just that you originated in the right place, but it's because you have a divine purpose as well. If you walk into a room, and there's a baby crying on the ground, and there's a cockroach about to crawl over that baby, what do you do? Well, the first thing you should do is maybe consider that both of them came from God, and maybe you need to have a real good think about your next step. No, 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 no. You walk in, you pick up the baby, and you, oh, timing. You kill... Yeah, that was good. You kill the cockroach. So, so, so we don't have seminars around whether, whether Christians can be pest controllers, do we? No, no, we don't. So, so what I'm saying here is that there are two equally important things that contribute to your value. They are where you came from. God made you. The Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You originated in the mind of God. There are maybe accidental parents, but there are no accidental children walking the earth. There, there, is, a, there is a divine being, a God in heaven who thought about you where you originated in his mind. But not only that... You've been given a divine purpose to be a co-heir with Christ. You, you, your, 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 your destiny is not just to perish on earth and just be, be purely window dressing to this life. No, no, God has an incredible eternal destiny for your life. And so we understand when these two things come together, there is immense value found in those, that combination. You know, people say in, in, in sales, they say this, they say that something is only worth what someone else is willing to pay for it. Have you heard people say that? Well, if that's the case, you and I are worth the most precious commodity that was ever being distributed on, on, on the planet Earth. That 
the blood of Jesus Christ is the most precious thing that's ever been shed. And it was shed in order to ransom you and I. It was shed so that we would be brought back to God. It was shed so that when Jesus Christ was up there, the Bible says that for the joy set before him, he endured that pain, that suffering, endured the cross so that the joy, which was you and I, might be reconciled with God, might have a right relationship with God. So, so really what we're understanding here is that even though we might be sitting here this morning or standing here this morning and we think, you know what, my life is in a real mess. There's a whole lot of things that I'm not happy about. There's a whole lot of pain in my relationship. There's a whole lot of things that I'm not happy about. There's, there's a whole lot of junk in the trunk. I, w- I, I, I say to you this morning that, that God still looks past all of that and He still sees something worth saving. That's how valuable we are. And, and you and I need to look with the same eyes that God has when we look at people. And I know that's really hard. I know that's a, that's a challenge. But when we look with eyes that value another person, that's when we're really extending love in that direction. And you know what's hilarious and quite sad, and, and I kind of have to laugh about it because otherwise I'd cry, is that I sometimes fail to express love to people who I value the most. I fail to express love to people who I value. I'll also give you an example. I could be, you know, stressed out and tired after a big day of work. And on my way home, I, I go into a supermarket and I, I buy some milk and bread because we're running low on that. And, and even though I'm so stressed, I'm so tightly wound up, I'm so exhausted, uh, you know, at all the events of the day and I'm emotionally drained and I, I'm, I'm, I'm angry and I'm frustrated and I get to the checkout and the, and the lady on the checkout or the guy on the checkout, they're like, oh, that'll be, you know, uh, $6 or whatever it is. And I, I pay my $6 and they say, have a nice day. And I say, yeah, you too, you have a nice day. And I smile at them. And I, and, I, and I wish them a nice day and I'm kind and I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm nice. And then I get home to the people I value the most. Bearing in mind, just to a complete stranger, I've been nice and kindful and loving and generous and warm and affectionate to a complete stranger. And then I walk in the door and it all goes to custard. All of a sudden, I cannot find it in with my capacity to be nice and generous and, and warm and loving to those people who, I, who I'm closest to, who I value the most. No, instead, I'm angry. Instead, I'm edgy. Instead, I'm depressed. Instead, I'm, I'm ropeable. Instead, I'm, I'm, I'm aggressive. Instead, I'm silent and passive-aggressive. Whatever it is, I find that I have to fight my defaults. Some of the best advice I was ever given in my life was, Tim, you've got to learn to fight your defaults. What are some of the defaults we can slip into? Instead of loving God with all our heart and our mind and our soul and, our, and you know, loving our neighbor as ourselves, I find that sometimes we become self-focused. We start to zero in on our problems, exactly what's going wrong in my life. You know, it's interesting in the, in the chapter of the Bible where it talks about David and Goliath, that incredibly famous battle where David eventually triumphs over Goliath. You know, the chapter opens with an explicit description of Goliath. It's like they knew everything about this guy. They knew how tall he was, what his weapons were like, what his armor was like. And often we can be like that with our problems. We understand our problems in explicit detail. And if anyone ever asks, I can give you a blow-by-blow description of exactly what's wrong in my life and exactly who's to blame. And I can do this. And, and you know, Jesus said this, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, be moved and it will be moved. And we'll go, oh, that's great. But you know what? Sometimes we spend so much time talking about the mountain. Huh. 
on the western side, you'll notice that the tusks, tussocks have been, you know, there's a westerly that comes through, so they're on a slightly different angle. And then, Because you've been around the problem so many times, and we become self-focused. It, it, some of our problems are like storms in a teacup. But because we're zoomed in so much on them, it looks like the waves are 10 foot tall. Some of us become so self-focused that we even look for problems, that, 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 that our infirmity can become our identity. It becomes the place that we live from. The only, only credence and the only kind of connection we have with other people is because of our pain. And so we find that we, that we get addicted to being self-focused, and it, it's a default that we slip into. The Bible says that by, we have this bias in us that we, we are self-focused. It's called sin. It leads us to a place of death and destruction. And so we need to learn what is the antidote. Well, you know, I've found a really practical way to sort of get my focus off myself. Do you know what I do? I ask someone else how they are. It's powerful. And I'm not just doing it just to fill the airwaves with conversation so that they get an opportunity to share their problems and then I can share mine. No, no, no. I'm deliberately taking my eyes off my own belly button and I'm focusing it on them. What, what, what's going on in your world? Here, here's, a, here's an opportunity. After church today, and this could be a hilarious social experiment, but after church today, instead of telling everyone what's going on in your life, what if you asked them? This is going to be so funny. And people going, how are you? No, 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 don't ask me. How are you? <laughs> Chaos out after that. So, but I, 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 even, I will even sometimes uh, not, not play a game, but I, I will challenge myself to ask more questions of that person than they ask of me. There's a great opportunity. Get, 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 get your gaze off yourself, Tim. Stop worrying about your own issues. And you know what I've found is that often other people's issues are far bigger than mine. And I realize that my problems, it puts my problem in a perspective and says, you know what? In the scheme of things, it's not that big. In the scheme of things, I can overcome that. In the scheme, and what they've been able to overcome, what they've been able to achieve in their life, what they've been able to walk through, what their, their faith that they're displaying in their situation right now, man, it puts me to shame. I, I, need to, I need to raise the level of my expectation that God is going to move on my behalf. And we find that when we just ask someone else how they're doing with a genuine interest, not an agenda to then share your own pain, but in an agenda to actually connect with that person. We find that our self-focus is short-circuited. Christianity isn't so much a self-improvement program as it is a self-removal program. So the way that we remove self is remove ourselves sometimes from the conversations that we have with people. Now, you've got to take this in balance. I understand that, you know, in a marriage and in any close relationships, there's a transparency that occurs. So there's, there's you know, you've got, to, you've got to be real with people, but there is a balance to dumping on people that you love and taking a genuine interest in their own. The, the, other, the other trap I think we can fall into, the other... Um, default we, we slip into is a victim focus. You know, it's interesting when the Israelites were, were uh, brought out of Egypt, they had been victims of incredible persecution. And when God brought them out, he, he, he worked a, a number of signs and wonders. And of course, the parting of the Red Sea is the, is the ultimate kind of miracle that we see in this, in this passage of scripture. And they come through the Red Sea and the Red Sea closes on their enemies and destroys the enemy. And they come out and they're heading towards the promised land. There's a destination in mind because God never brings you out of something not to bring you into something new. But often in between there's this gap 
called the wilderness. And, uh, and the wilderness goes on for longer than we would like. Because the wilderness isn't about a geography. The wilderness is about what's going on in our hearts. So even Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where the devil came and tempted him. But what I find powerful about the wilderness is God doesn't want the wilderness to stay the wilderness. He doesn't want the wilderness to stay the place of burden, the place of persecution, the place that we lost faith. No, the wilderness is meant to become a place of victory. So the Bible says that even though Jesus was led into the wilderness where he was tempted, a chapter later in Luke 5 verse 14, it says that Jesus often went back to the wilderness to pray. So why did Jesus go back to the wilderness to pray? Because the place had become a place of victory. Instead of a place, see, we, we often run from our failures. We often run from the places that were painful. We often run from the places that were boring and oh, there was the burden. No, 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 God wants to take the wilderness and turn it into a place of victory. That's why you're still in it. So what he does with the Israelites is he takes them through the wilderness and they stay in the wilderness for 40 years. Because why? Because the, the victim mindset needed to get out of them. There was still too much Egypt in them. Even though they'd been taken out of Egypt, there was still some stuff that needed to shift on the inside of their life because he was bringing them to a place where they had to, to, to rule, to be victors. So how do you take a victim? If you just took a victim and put them in a place where they had to, they would lose everything because the language of a victim is complaint and blame. And I know that some stuff has happened, and I know it wasn't your fault, and I know that, 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 you know, that person shouldn't have done that, and they shouldn't have said this, and blah, blah, blah. And I know all of that, but are you going to live as a victim? Are you going to go to the default place as a victim? Because I find that that will, will short-circuit your relationships, because all of a sudden, it's again the, the pain of the past. is what people did to you that's, that's the problem. And, and if you live in a place where you're always complaining and always blaming, I guarantee you it affects the health of your relationships. So we need to change the vocabulary that we put in our conversations. Instead of talking about what happened and whose fault it was, we begin to take responsibility for problems that weren't even ours to begin with. Oh, I noticed that, that so-and-so didn't turn up this morning. For the, I'll, I'll step up. What can I do to help? We can start very, very simply by taking responsibility for things in our life, and it shifts the atmosphere of our relationships in our life. The third uh, area that we can default into is insecurity. We are all insecure. I don't care who you are. <laughs> You're insecure. The reason that we're insecure is because there's a, there's a shattered image on the inside of us. It's like we were, we were created in the image of God, and then when we sinned and we reject God's best, it's like someone punches the mirror and psh, it just shatters into a thousand pieces. And when you look at it, Sometimes you get a glimpse of what God wants you to be. But then other times it kind of looks like this ugly mess. And we feel insecure because when we compare our life to someone else's, we start to feel inferior. We start to feel like we missed the mark. We start to feel like maybe I'm not, as, not where I need to be. Maybe I've missed something in my life. Maybe, maybe oh, I, I really haven't measured up to the standard that seems to be out there. I'm, I'm obviously not a normal person. They, they, they look like a normal person. Here's the truth. The only normal people are the ones you don't know very well. So we, we need to learn how do we overcome our security. And part of it is understanding that just because you're unique doesn't mean you're bad. When, we, when the Bible says that you're fearfully wonderful, I mean, God went all out when he made you. He made you with unique fingerprints, voice patterns, uh, um, brainwaves. The cornea of your eye is unique. I mean, God is ridiculous in the detail that he's gone to make you different. He did it on purpose 
to make you different. But we've taken different as making meaning bad. And so we become insecure. But comparison will always kill contentment in our heart. And we need to understand that we need to be ourselves because everyone else is taken. You can be the best you that anyone else can be on the earth. So what do we do? How do we replace the defaults in our life with something that's more healthy? The first tip I've got, and this is just really practical for us if we're mindful of these words from Jesus, and the first thing we need to do is to do a better, better job of showing kindness. Now I know that that sounds really naff and pathetic. Oh, what did they talk about at church today? Well, the preacher said to be kind. <laughs> that was about it? Wow. Yeah, I'm definitely coming to that church. Kind? That's what old people are. <laughs> Until I realized that, that God has elevated the virtue of kindness into some pretty lofty areas. I found that kindness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, when you allow the Spirit of God to whom there is no equal, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the grave begins to work in your life. The power of God begins to flow through you. Gifts and all stuff is released. The fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. Heck, it's up there with love and joy and peace. Man, we all want that. Kindness. Are we, are we tapering off here? So I started looking at other scriptures. I found that in Jeremiah 9, the Lord describes himself as one who exercises kindness. He leads with kindness. Then he says, justice. I would have led with justice. <laughs> kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. See, kindness is actually an expression of grace. Kindness is not deserved. Some of us in our minds that if they're kind to me, I'll be kind to them. No, no, kindness does not, does not equal you know, services paid. It, it, it's actually about extending something, extending a grace to someone who doesn't even deserve it. Who may have done everything that they can to get themselves away from you, but you still find it in your capacity to love, to show kindness. What is kindness? Kindness is making breakfast for your spouse. Kindness is uh, letting them go out, you know, while the kids are going crazy. Or, or kindness is uh, buying someone lunch. Or kindness could be cleaning up the house. Or kindness could be something small, but it's something that you know matters to that person. So understanding who they are, what means a lot to them, and extending kindness in that space is really, really important. I find that kindness shuts the door on contempt and bitterness in my heart. And the Bible also says that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So it's the very, very expression of His grace that He is so kind towards us that He wants us to turn from living a life that is separate from Him to a life that is connected with Him, and He uses kindness to do this. You're wondering how you can turn your marriage around and turn that relationship around and turn around the relationship with your children. Start employing kindness. It completely changes the game. And the second thing as we come to a close here is there's this, the power twins, I call them, the forgiveness and repentance. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations that are very complex. People talk about how the situation in Syria is incredibly complex, and it is. 
But there's actually a simple solution to every conflict, every hurt, everything that has ever been said or done or acted upon another person. It's called forgiveness and repentance. And I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying that it's simple. See, every conflict starts in the human heart. Every action that has ever been done has been conceived in our heart. The heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. And so our ability to exercise forgiveness and repentance and employ these into our life are so important. Let me just give you an illustration. And we'll use children so it doesn't hit too close to home, hey? There's two little kids. Their names are Johnny and Jimmy. They're best friends at school. They get along really, really well. And they just love spending time together. They, they have the same interests. They, they love playing soccer at lunchtime. But one day, Johnny, as he's frustrated and he's highly competitive, hits Jimmy. And Jimmy is really hurt by this. And Jimmy begins to cry and he's so upset. Johnny sort of feels like it was half justified and he sort of half feels bad because he didn't expect Jimmy to get so hurt by it. He didn't really realize that the consequence of that action was going to be so dramatic. And now he's sort of feeling like he, he wishes he could take that back. But at the same time, he didn't really know how to express himself. And so he's, he's sort of a bit confused about it. And one of the teachers comes over and he says, Johnny, you, you, you need to say sorry. You need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. Do you know that you can go to the gym and lift all the weights in the whole place? You can run for as long as you can, you know, on a marathon. You can build the biggest companies in the world. You can amass the greatest fortunes. Do you know what the hardest thing in life to do is? To say, I'm sorry. It takes everything within us. Before God, it takes everything within us to say, God, you know what? I'm sorry. Because when I say I'm sorry to God, it means that I, I haven't done everything right. That I am saying, you know what? I stuffed up. I've fallen short. I tripped over my own ambition. I got confused. I got caught up in the heat of the moment. I thought that I could reach for certain things. And it's a bit like Jimmy and Johnny. Jimmy is there and Johnny, Johnny says, oh, so, so Johnny, Jimmy. Johnny, Jimmy. And Johnny's like, tries to muster everything within himself to say these two words. And at first, they're almost silent. They're like, I'm sorry. The teacher says, no, so, so he can hear you. So he can hear you. It's been like that with us and God, isn't it? So, so, so God can hear you. So, so God actually can hear you. Yeah, God, I am, I'm sorry with my heart. I'm sorry. And so, and so Jimmy says, I'm, I'm sorry. And in that moment, there's like this release of feeling imprisoned that, that Jimmy had in his, his heart. Feels like he's been liberated from something because all of a sudden he said, Yeah, I am so actually I am sorry. There's a, there's a flow back in his life. And Johnny feels a little bit better. I got confused again. 
Jimmy, okay, Jimmy's the one receiving the apology. Should have called them like Mark and Bob or something. Still getting confused. But here's the thing, when you receive an apology, you need to exercise forgiveness. But Jesus was on the cross. He said the most extraordinary thing. He's up there. They've just punched nails through his hands and his feet. They've flogged him. They've stuck a crown of thorns in his head. They've, they've deliberately done this. And you know what Jesus said? He said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What a great example for us to bring into our own life that we can actually let people go. Not that we excuse the behavior. Not that we are automatically, I just completely trust them all over again. No, no, no. That you release them from the prison that you've got in your own heart. Even before they've said sorry, you display forgiveness. I don't owe me anything. I'm free from that hurt. I'm free from that indiscretion. I'm free from that pain. I'm not going to hold them in a little prison in my heart. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm, you know, aggressively having conversations that I'm never going to play out in real life with them. You know, you're spending so much time and energy keeping them in the prison of your own heart. And today is a day you can actually set them free. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our church, find us online at c3churchwatson.com.au. We hope to see you in church again this weekend.